0: You know, the holes in the Swiss cheese aligned and um, it was controlled flight into terrain. And um, yeah, uh, just a significant thing to go through. I had um, quite a few passengers on board and we all walked away. So that was quite an amazing thing to even just to understand
1: that. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number three of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. If you're a return listener, thanks for having faith in me that I can entertain you. And if you're a new listener, then welcome to your new favorite podcast. On the step is the water rudders to your floats. It's the boat hook for your mooring. It's everything float planes and flying boats. I'm absolutely excited to be talking seaplanes with you all once again today. Now, before we get stuck in, If you think that you know someone who'd be perfect to get on this show, please get in contact with me via email on at hotmail.com or on my Instagram account at thatmallardguy. Also, if you love the show and want to hear more stories from floatplane and flying boat pilots around the world, give me a five-star review on the platform you're listening on so I know you're loving the show and then I will work harder and harder to give you guys the best float plane stories from all around the globe. Very, very excited about it. I've got a few lined up already that I can't wait to share with you. Now I just wanted to read out the first five star review on Apple Podcasts that I got and it's from Lake Buccaneer Pilot. Thank you, Lake Buccaneer Pilot, who says a great listen for those interested in water flying. Well I couldn't have put it better myself, Lake Buccaneer Pilot. Thank you for the five-star review and I hope you're listening again to this episode. Okay on to episode number three today as you heard in the intro we have a good friend of mine Benny Senior who has been through a massive flying ordeal when he was involved in a seaplane incident that resulted in the dreaded controlled flight into terrain or sea fit scenario and he walked away as well as his passengers and he's able to tell us his story and it's it's a real gripping story I must say I'm glad that he's able to share that with us today but first it's time to have your float plane and flying boat questions answered on a quick Q&A. All right, folks, uh, Q&A for today. We've got three questions that were asked on my Instagram page. Did a little Q&A last week, and here are some of the questions that were asked. First one comes from Max underscore likes underscore aviation. Good on you, Max, for liking aviation. His question was, uh, how many types of flying boats have you flown or flown in? Good question, Max. I am not really that uh, experienced in flying in many types. Uh, the only flying boat that I've actually been in is the Mallard. Yeah, that's the only one I've actually ever flown in. I'd love to get my hands on a, something like a Sea Ray, an Icon, a Buccaneer. That would be epic. Obviously, something bigger, maybe an Albatross those uh, CL1415s over in uh, Spain for 43 group. Oh my God, how cool do they look. That would be epic. Uh, but yeah, only I've actually ever flown in one flying boat. but um, thanks for that question, Max likes aviation and keep liking aviation Max. thank you. The next question I have is from Casaval. Casa R Val. okay. How hard is it to get that first float job? should I get a float rating beforehand? Well, um uh, getting the first float job is pretty difficult. Uh, like most aviation jobs, even just getting any aviation job for the first time is, is difficult. So, it, it is tough but my advice for you and the advice that other people have obviously given through my previous shows are, first of all, Yes, you should get that float rating beforehand. Don't ever expect an operator to employ you and give you a float rating. You've got no chance, I think, in aviation or especially seaplanes to expect that of an operator and that's not going to happen. So get that float rating beforehand. The next thing after that, I think, is become a pest. Get around those float operators that are likely to give you a job. It's obviously a bit silly getting a float rating and coming hang around with me because we don't employ Pilots who have zero float experience—that's just they're not able to handle that mallet at that stage. They need some float experience before they can get in our aircraft. But operators who have things like um, maybe a two oh six float plane that does scenic flights, maybe um, a one eight five or something like that, um, up in Canada, go and hang around with those operators. Meet seaplane pilots within the industry. You know, talk to them through social media and um, show them that you are keen. It's in the end, it's the pilots who are the most keen. Uh, and they hang around the operators, they help wash aeroplanes, they have beers with the the pilots after work, they're the guys who will end up in the float flying jobs uh, at the end of the day. So, if you're able to work hard and push really hard for your um, dream to fly seaplanes, then that's the way I think you should go and I'm sure that a lot of other float plane pilots out there will um, echo that thought. So. Casaval, get out there, get your float rating done, pick a float plane operator that probably gives you ICUS as well or some some, some sort of lead-in training after you've done your uh, endorsement there. That's also a positive and uh, good luck. I hope we hear some positive results later that you're in you're in the float industry. Okay, so then last question for today comes from Sam underscore Harrigan. He says, uh, do you think that flying boats could still play a part in major RPT operations? That is a cool question sam and that is my dream one day to see seaplanes and flying boats become uh, rpt operators again it i don't think it will ever happen really the way it was back in say the the 50s and the 60s and 70s for example but it would be epic to see some flying boats back uh, in rpt operations i mean you have to have a look at the maldives as one of the closest operators around the world to being an RPT, or for those in the States, I don't think you have RPT, so regular public transport or scheduled service flying operator. The Maldives, they're probably the closest thing. They are basically running to a schedule every day using flying boats and float planes, obviously. Um, That's probably the the, the best example I could give. Um, I don't think it would ever become a major RPT operation ever again, but uh, we can only dream Sam underscore Harrigan. Uh, that they'll one day be on the horizon so thank you very much for that sam and thank you for everyone who's posted some questions on my instagram account i'll be doing that again in the future and i'll be putting up the answers on future episodes of on the step all right folks the time has now come the moment you've all been waiting for let's finish off the checklist pick a runway clear of jet skis and yachts and get going on the step Right engine is turning, 12% fuel, alight. Okay, welcome on the line, Benny Senior. How you going, mate?
0: Yeah, g'day, Dan. Very well, thanks, mate. Good to be here with you today.
1: Mate, absolutely uh, stoked to have you on board uh, this podcast. Really looking forward to getting involved in your story and talk to you all about flying seaplanes. You're an international seaplane pilot. That's pretty cool to be able to say that. And you've flown floats at a few different operations in Australia. Let's start off with uh, what got you into flying, and and was seaplanes one of the things that you really wanted to start off with at the start of your career, or was it just flying in general?
0: Yeah. Well said. Um, good question to start with an intro to my flying. I um, I've got fond memories as a a kid in primary school <laughs> standing in the quad uh, during recess or lunch and staring up to the sky and watching the planes come into land at uh, Sydney Airport and and just thinking, yeah, wow, what's what's going on there? I want, I want to explore a bit more with what's going on up there. I want to do that one day. Flying's also in the blood as well. Um, it runs through my family. My grandfather uh, flew for Qantas back in the day on the Super Constellation uh, the DC3, the Electra, wow, and started his his uh, ground school component on the 707 as well, and until his eyes started to play up, and he had to give up his uh, aviation career because of that. Um, my father as well, he had his he had his private pilot's license as well. So as a kid, I was surrounded by some you know great stories and and that whole aviation vibe through my grandfather and and my father. So. Definitely, yeah, uh, it was something that I wanted to pursue as I was growing up and always had a fascination with airplanes and, you know, what they were all about.
1: That's really cool. Like, uh, my uncle was at Qantas for, for 40 years the and my grandfather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I didn't actually know that about you, about the super constellations. Did you actually get to get a few of those stories out of him?
0: Uh, yeah, I did. I did actually. One, one fond story. <laughs> One memorable story. Um, so the Super Connie used to obviously didn't have a huge range on it. He used to do a lot of hops between Australia and and um, and London. And there was one story there where he was in uh, in Karachi, and they were just about to start up, and well, they were going through the start up cycle of all the four engines. And and once completed that, they just started to taxi, and uh, so happened to be that there was. Um, a local that wasn't very in tune with his surroundings, and he he drove <laughs> he he drove a um a baggage cart uh, in the path of one of the outboard engines, oh and no. the, yeah, the prop actually did strike that luggage cart. So they had to shut down, and obviously being in in quite a, a remote place away from Australia and and spare parts and all that sort of stuff, it was decided amongst the crew and the engineers on board that they would um, shave down all the tips on all the other props of of that engine to put it back into balance so that 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 prop became back into balance and they could actually sort of, it became a usable prop again um, to to fly fly back home to Australia. So, yeah, that was quite an interesting story, thinking on their feet and in in a remote or, you know, an isolated place away from spare parts and all that sort of stuff and they repaired the prop pretty much then and there and put it all back into balance and started up and off they went again.
1: The logistics of an airline operation <laughs> back in the day must have been so crazy oh, hey, compared absolutely. to compared absolutely. to these days. Absolutely. Uh, so what about your flying training? You're obviously exposed uh, to a fair bit of aviation. When did you get into your flying training?
0: Yeah, so I started my flying training at, um, at 24 years of age, um, probably a little bit later than most, I suppose. Oh, I, f- I finished high school and uh, went into a trade, uh, completed the trade after four years and then uh, got into my flying training. It was probably a good thing to do um, as well. Obviously, that those, those few years after high school gave me the time to sort of save up for the flying training, um, as we all know, and I'm sure we can relate, it's quite an expensive thing to undertake. So, yeah, started at 24 years of age here in Sydney. Um, I studied part-time and I flew part-time. Um, I, di- I didn't have a whole heap of money behind me to sort of get the course done get my cpl course done straight away or over a, a short amount of time so yeah it was a four-year sort of part-time course i'd, I'd work where i could throughout the week and save up those pennies and then i'd, I'd study at night time at the flying club i'd go to you know ppl classes cpl classes I'd, I'd fly in the mornings before work or after work and then on the weekends so it was quite a long sort of process four years it took me uh, to get my commercial pilots pilots license now i finished that in 2012 uh, yeah, those four years of training were were absolutely fantastic. I um, started off in the Cessna One Five Two, and went solo in in the One Five Two. Juliet, November Bravo, it was a little weapon. Uh, some good memories there. Then moved on to the Warrior uh, for some navigational stuff, and then onto the uh, Piper Arrow for the constant speed unit with uh, retractable gear components as well. and Then I was lucky enough and um, yeah grateful to get my hands onto a Cessna 182 RG, retractable gear 182. It was quite a slippery little machine so I did a lot of my commercial navigational flights uh, in that Cessna 182.
1: So four years, a bit, probably a bit longer than what a lot of people would, would do obviously being the part time and, and still working. So you've got your license in 2012. What happened there? Did you go chasing jobs straight away?
0: Yeah, so got got my commercial license halfway through twenty twelve, and um, straight after that I got my float endorsement. Um, again, just probably a bit more of a background there why I got into floats. I um, again going back to my childhood um, days growing up, I used to spend a lot of um, a lot of time throughout the holidays at my. Aunty and Uncle's place down at Cronulla, in, uh, just south of Sydney. And is um, surrounded by a fair bit of water, and in particular Gunnamatta Bay on the western side. There was a, a float operator in there back in the day as I was growing up when I was a teenager. And I used to remember seeing um, small see seaplanes flying and uh, taking off and landing in and out of Gunnamatta Bay and looking over the bay from a, my from a, from a relative's place, thinking, holy hell, that's, that's definitely something that I want to do one day.
1: There must have been crazy going from watching um, airliners land on the runway at Sydney Airport yeah. <laughs> to now watching airplanes land on the water.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I always sort of loved being on the water and around the water as a kid as well, and you know to combine the two, those two things together, the water and 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 flying. It was just it was a no-brain. It was like, yep, I'm doing that one day for sure. So yeah, got my commercial license in 2012, and uh, mate, straight after that, I, I. Um, Spent the spent a fair bit of money to get my my initial float endorsement at um at Sydney Seaplanes here in Sydney. We did uh, a fair bit of training over over a couple of days uh, with the instructor and mate. What a um, what an introduction that was! Absolutely fantastic. Still remember my first um, water landing and water takeoff as well. Um, wow! What a buzz! What a highlight!
1: So you would have had probably, what, 200, 250 hours maybe at this time and straight into floats.
0: Yeah, correct. Yeah, 250 hours and um, always wanted to do float flying. So I thought, well, you know, it was the right time, right place to get the float endorsement and paid the big bucks to to get that that
1: endorsement. So what was the aircraft type you did the float plane endorsement on?
0: Yeah, it was on the Beaver. Oh, nice.
1: um,
0: Straight float um, Beaver.
1: That must have been a real handful coming straight out of a commercial.
0: Absolutely, straight out of a commercial, from flying a you know six cylinder one eight two to then flying the big radial engine of the Beaver, and also on the water, and just learning new skills, and trying to understand the water and read the wind, and you know it was quite a quite a quite a big learning curve. Absolutely fascinating time.
1: And tell us a little bit about the endorsement
0: yeah the endorsement was uh, run over a few days um the instructor uh, rob Britton, his name was um very good guy very experienced very knowledgeable man it, it was it was quite a lot to take in you know you've been doing i've been doing so much flying on and off uh, you know an asphalt runway and to then you know walk down the pontoon <laughs> on, onto a dock which is wobbling around in, in the chop and in the waves and to then step onto an airplane and that bobbles around as you as you stand on the floats and learning about the new aircraft, learning about the new engine and, you know, all the different speeds that go with it and uh, operating procedures and engine management and power settings and stuff, it was, it was quite a steep learning curve. And then to actually start up and all of a sudden taxi away from the dock and to realise that you've got no brakes, it's like, oh, geez, hold on, there's a bit to think about here. I've got no, you can't just sort of jump on the tow pedals to slow you down. Yeah, I had an amazing time. Uh, so, yeah, over a few days, we did a fair bit of water work to begin with, just taxiing around and pulling up to docks and pulling up to buoys and understanding the wind and how that affects the aircraft on the water. And then we sort of got airborne and did a couple of flights and you do some up aerial work, all your steep turns and your stalls and you know getting getting to feel feel out another aircraft and how how the wing wants to behave. A uh, fair bit of uh, your water landings and water takeoffs, uh, getting used to that um feeling a a seaplane through its takeoff phase you know it's sort of it's quite heavy in the water then as you build up speed it sort of becomes lighter and lighter it gets up onto the steps so feeling all of that feeling those different attitudes out and how that how the aircraft wants to behave on the floats on the water getting that attitude right that's finding that sweet spot
1: sounds like a fun time eh?
0: oh mate so good i I, I wouldn't i wouldn't change it
1: and what a spot to do it like People who don't know that Rose Bay area there where Sydney Seaplanes operates has such a history of flying boats and float planes in Australia, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, the history, it's all still so prevalent. Like there's down there at Sydney Seaplanes, they, they have a really good display of, of the history. The
1: new Catalina Bar down there as well? Yeah, and
0: correct. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Really cool terminal. Yeah. yeah. It's a good setup down there, eh? Yeah, it is. Now, mate, was that uh, float endorsement, were you going to tick that off basically as just a bit of fun or was that straight away trying to get you a job in the float industry?
0: Um, mate, a bit, a bit of both at the time. I always wanted to give it a go and it, it was a tick in the box. It was something I've always wanted to do and you had to give it a go. And then obviously, you know, perhaps I could use that further on down the track. And it made interestingly that you um, you bring that up. It would have been the second day, or perhaps the third day in, into the endorsement. And um, there I was as a you know a fresh CPL license holder, and you know not much experience under my belt. And the instructor actually sort of sat me down, and he pretty much made put me on the spot. He he, he had a, he had a real good chat with me. He said he was very open and honest, and he said, "Look, Ben, you're spending a lot of money here to get a to get a float endorsement." Um, the prospects of, of getting a job in the float industry in Australia are quite slim. It's it's not a very big industry. Are you sure you want to, you know, continue continue with the training? Because, um, yeah, pay, paying big bucks. And, mate, that sort of that took me back. That sort of really sort of shook me up a little bit and just that it was so – frank and honest and he said look you know before we continue you know let's just have a you know good sort of think about it is this something you really want to do before you spend big bucks to get a float endorsement and i I'd actually i remember you know we did I, I took some time there and you know sort of half hour to an hour and sort of really thought about it and i rang i rang a few people i rang my dad and sort of said look you know just the, the instructor sort of said this and it was all quite a bit of a shock and had to think about it and I knew he was right in, in saying that. The opportunities in float flying in Australia are quite slim um, and, you know, I suppose that truth sort of hurt and didn't really want to accept it. And But, you know what, mate, it was the passion. It was it was something I wanted to do and it was like, no, nah, bugger it, I'm doing it. So, yeah, p- pursued with the, with the training.
1: I guess in a way it's good that the company's not just there to take your money, you know. Uh, yeah, correct. They're there yeah. to make, make you realize that it, it is a tough industry in Australia. There's not a lot of float operators in Australia and you're not just going to get this endorsement and walk into a job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so i um, very grateful for, 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 that, for that chat actually, you know, upon, upon reflection. And it's so right. It's such a small industry in Australia and worldwide. Seaplanes aren't aren't, aren't all that common uh, worldwide they are in their certain locations like Canada and Alaska for example but uh, on a whole it's quite a niche little market to get into and um, here in Australia yeah you know there's only sort of you know a handful to a dozen of commercial operators around Australia that uh, the opportunities are quite slim so yeah mate I, I bit the bullet and it was a passion I wanted to do it and I'd always wanted to do it and I just thought yep bugger it I'm gonna do it so continued with the uh, with the endorsement and mate. You know, so glad I did it. I've um, never never looked back.
1: Well, it's obviously paid off. I mean, you, you're on this show talking to me, so it must mean you've done <laughs> done a few good things in the, uh, the yeah. seaplane career, mate. So yeah, absolutely. So, uh, what happened next? Was it straight out there applying for jobs? Did you get a seaplane job, or was it just looking for your first commercial job in aviation?
0: Yeah, well, it's it's probably a common a common thing that we all know getting your first commercial job is the hardest job to get I suppose because there you are as a commercial you know bare commercial pilot license holder and you don't have much experience under your belt you try and get your first job but all all the operators want people with experience and yeah mate set off on an adventure uh left uh, New South Wales headed up north up to the Sundays and um, I actually went up there to work in my trade Sort of get my foot and get get grounded up there in the Wit Sundays. I knew there were a few operators up there flying, um, scenic flights up in that part of the world. So yeah, moved up to the Wit Sundays in, in into a role of, of of my trade of greenkeeping and got established there. Met some people, met the right people, popped my head into a few airports and introduced myself and said, hey, guys, this is me, I've, you know, I, I want to fly, I've got my CPL, are there any opportunities? And met some good people over in Ellie Beach and one of the operators there at the time and, um, mate, right time, right place, there was a position that opened up sort of the year after I moved up to the Sundays and uh, got my first flying job out of Early Beach, uh, flying Cessna 210s and air vans around the Whitsunday Islands and out over the Great Barrier Reef. What, 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 you know I sort of jagged it. what, what a place to be um, to, to get your first commercial job you know, on, on the coastline and over one of the most amazing places in the world.
1: Yeah, it's such a beautiful location, the Whitsundays. Yeah. so it would, would have been a great start to your flying career and, and be able to kind of sit back into these hour-long scenic flights also would have been really good to consolidate your flying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the operators up there out of Ellie Beach would showcase what the Sundays had to offer and that was Whitehaven Beach, the Whitsunday Islands and also a bit further out offshore out to the Great Barrier Reef. So it was common to be doing uh, quite a few one hour flights back to back throughout your day up there. So good time, good company, good amount of flying to sort of get those uh, hours ticking over into your logbook.
1: So there was no seaplane operator at that company that you worked for?
0: No, there wasn't. No, there was a seaplane operator or a few seaplane operators in the area, but no, I didn't get um, – my first job was not a float flying job. The first flying job was uh, flying Cessna 210s and air vans in and out of Chute Harbour. Um, so I knew I was in the right area to pursue a, a float position um, with a few float operators up there in the Whitsundays. So it was just a matter of time and myself getting building up some um, experience, getting some hours into the logbook and um, that would put me in good stead to get, you know, a, a float position down the track.
1: How early did you go from being employed at that operator to then going out there and trying to get that first float job?
0: Well, mate, when I first moved up there to the Sundays, I sort of I got to know the float operators then and also the non-float operators. So I'd sort of build up a relationship and just got to know the guys um, from quite early on. So... It, Being up up there too in the Sundays, it's quite a small community of of pilots. We all sort of know each other. We know who's who and who fires for who, and, you know, you sort of build relationships that way. So I was with my first operator out of Ellie Beach for 12 months, and then, uh, again, mate, right time, right place, there there was a a position that opened up, flying floats. So I um, put my hand up for that, and they knew who I was by this stage, and I'd got a few hundred hours uh, under my belt, uh, flying, you know, the 210 and the airmans around. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to jag a float flying job um, out of Hamilton Island 12 months after getting my, my initial flying job.
1: They must have felt really good, especially hearing that almost negative comments from uh, the float plane endorsement fella down in Sydney there, and then to yeah. twelve months later, you're actually in a paying float job in Australia. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It was. Yeah, it all made. It, upon reflection, it all sort of happened so quickly. It's quite quite interesting to reflect on there. But mate, you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to, um, you know, bit of luck on your side. Work hard. Put your hand up. You know, be in the right right place at the right time and you know my lucky stars aligned and there i was flying a beaver around
1: yeah i think i see that a lot as well with operators and and pilots getting jobs in the float industry it's generally the guy who's there hanging around like a bad smell almost um (laughs) you know in your face but in a in a good way obviously uh they're the guys who end up getting the starts in the float industry isn't it
0: yeah well said well said you've got to you've got to be keen you've got to be you got to have a bit of passion you got to have the drive there you've got to be persistent that's just what you've got to do um yeah, any future employer is going to want to see that you've got that enthusiasm you've got that drive you've got that passion you, you, you want to commit yourself to, to to doing what you do and you just have to be there and almost a bit like a pest you've sort of got to you know be in their face and you know keep knocking on the door and keep putting your hand up and volunteer your time you know help out where you can and and, um, yeah, right place, right time. And, you know, you're in a good position to, to get something when something comes up.
1: From memory, that was also how you got your first job, wasn't it? it was a bit bit like a a bit of a pest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Exact same thing. you got to put yourself in the right areas and hang around. And, you know, once you put your hand up, be seen, um, be heard, um, be there ready to ready to uh, pounce on a job when it gets offered. So, yeah, persistence definitely pays off, mate, for sure.
1: So tell us about you've made the move now back over to Hamilton Island, uh, the big half-an-hour boat ride, um, starting your first job flying beavers around the Whitsundays.
0: Yeah, what an amazing experience. Uh, Very, very fortunate to get that position and um, did a fair bit of of, uh, what they call ICUS. Uh, I flying with um, some more experienced guys, they obviously just didn't let me loose in, the, uh, in, a, in a seaplane straight away. Um, seaplane flying's not just your normal runway to runway, asphalt surface, you know, all the time. It's, it's de- definitely float flying has its new and greater challenges. You go from a, a risky environment flying a normal airplane to an even riskier environment flying a seaplane. Uh, So, yeah, a fair bit of ICUS flying there, getting supervised and getting taught the ins and outs of becoming a a, a competent and capable uh, professional seaplane pilot. So I did about 50 hours of ICUS in the beaver. Uh, That was an amphibious beaver too, actually. So it was, um, yeah, it obviously had a retractable gear system as well, so it could land on the runway at at Hamilton Island or any runways around the area. And also, you know, you retract the gear and it becomes a, a... A seaplane with floats so you can land on the water as well and that um, had its challenges as well as you're um, learning about becoming a competent seaplane pilot you you sort of see a fair few videos of of what happens when you land on the water with the wheels down and you know understanding just how important it is to you know double check triple check what position your gear's in for what you want to do so that was you know another sort of steep learning curve there as as well
1: it, it is funny the whole um, undercarriage thing you talk about. A, a mate of mine uh, used to always say to airline pilots how many wheels up landings he's done and, they, and <laughs> they'd be shocked, you know. They'd be like, what? Yep. you can't go around telling people that, you know. He had thousands yeah. of them. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's the mindset, isn't it? Now, you're going from being a pilot who puts the wheels down every time he lands but yep, now that's... you're putting them up to do a landing. So yeah, it, right. it might sound simple, but it still happens these days that uh, gear down waterlangs occur, and people yeah. can die from it quite easily. So it's a serious uh, topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's um like you said, it sounds it sounds easy, um but you know when you're under the pump with all the hundreds of other checks that you've got to do, um mate, that that's pretty much the most important check. Um, is making making sure your wheels are in the right configuration for, for the for the landing that you want.
1: Exactly. And even little mm. things like ramping, for example. I remember going into Hayman Island up to the north on yep. Sundays there. And, you know, if you thought too far ahead, you had to have your wheels down in the water to be able to do <laughs> the ramp. So, yep. you know, it's even little things like that, that at some stage you've got to put the wheels back down, but they've got to start up for the landing. So, yeah you know, it, it's certainly a trap and checklists, obviously, and having a clear mindset and being really thorough with your checks, like I'm sure you were, uh, are the keys to making sure it never happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you said, mate, a lot of traps there to uh, to catch you out in, in the float flying world. So, yeah, to get my first float flying job on an amphibious beaver was uh, quite a steep learning curve.
1: So what kind of work were you doing with that beaver in the Whitsundays? Tell us a little bit about the tours, et cetera.
0: Yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of tours and scenic flights out to Whitehaven Beach and also out of the Great Barrier Reef. So we, we had a few different sort of tours that we'd offer, a few different options that the guests could pay for. Uh, a common one was just a short hop out to Whitehaven Beach, You'd take off out of Hamilton Islands, uh, a little scenic flight over Hill Inlet at the northern end of Whitehaven Beach and a water landing onto the beach um, or adjacent to the beach down there at the southern corner. and taxi into the beach, turn the aircraft around, get your guests off, set them up with some champagne and some snacks for a few hours, um, watch them enjoy their time. I'd also enjoy my time by swimming at one of the world's best beaches.
1: Sending Snapchats to all the mates. <laughs> uh.
0: How good's this, boys? Yeah. Um, so, mates, see some real good memories there. Um, at Whitehaven Beach. Also, a few tours out, out to the Great Barrier Reef as well. We used to, we had a um, boat, a glass bottom boat on a mooring out there in one of the reef systems. Um, out there, we'd take guests out there for, for an experience of a lifetime. A seaplane flight out over the Whitsunday Islands out to the Great Barrier Reef, around Hart Reef, a water landing inside uh, Hardy Lagoon there and pull up alongside a glass bottom boat again serve them some champagne they go for a snorkel in pristine waters um untouched coral reef systems the sun would be shining there wouldn't be much wind out there you're 50 nautical miles offshore thinking bloody hell how good's this and then fly them back so cook quite a variety of of um tours there and, and flying as well over arguably one of the best and most pristine parts of the world.
1: Yeah, I don't have to wonder myself how good it was. Obviously, I did four and a half years in the Whitsundays as well and it certainly was one of the best jobs I've ever had, flying guests around that area. It's just just so incredible, one of the best jobs. Yeah, exactly. Now, what was the progression uh, from the beaver? How long were you on that? And then when did you step up to the next aircraft? Yeah, so I was
0: on the beaver for for 12 months before I was offered the opportunity to to step up into the caravan so made super excited to uh, take on that challenge as well again did different type of engine a much bigger aircraft a lot more weight uh, a lot more power in the engine all those sorts of things so yeah that was that was an excellent uh, opportunity as well so yeah 12 months after flying the beaver into the caravan uh, did a very thorough endorsement um, with a mentor of mine.
1: Where was that? Was that on Hamilton or...? Yeah, yeah. that
0: was on Hamilton Island in the Sundays, and we did a fair bit of training out at Proserpine Dam a few miles inland off the coast of the Sundays. there. Thoroughly enjoyed all of that. And again, a fair bit of ICUS flying, um, supervised flying in the caravan to get your head well trained into that sort of headspace of a, of a different engine and different sized aircraft. And then, mate, ended up flying a caravan, the Amphib, around the Sundays as well and out to the reef. How good.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, It's great having that experience in the Whitsundays. Those elements themselves are very variable and it it is a tough place to fly. So having that experience in the beaver already makes transitioning onto the caravan a lot easier. But how did you find the actual transition of everything else?
0: Yeah, absolutely well said. The Whitsundays, it's quite an exposed environment up there. You you get quite a lot of wind. Uh, You can get quite a decent sort of swell rolling in. So it's not exactly... You a know, very smooth and user-friendly sort of place to be uh, flying a seaplane when they are quite fragile sort of machines. So, yeah, you did learn a lot about flying aircraft in those sorts of environments. As I said, it's not just your normal flat asphalt runway all the time. You've got swell, you've got boat wake, you've got other hazards to avoid, kayakers and swimmers and snorkelers, all these other things to look out for. Um, understanding how the wind the, how to read the wind on the on the surface of the water um, how to pick your landing spot what you're looking for you know off the water you know 50 meters 100 200 meters out seeing seeing where the gusts are gusts of wind all those sorts of things uh, see so quite quite a challenging space uh, environment to learn float flying but to do that in the beaver and then to progress into the caravan it was it would make that easier just to focus on the caravan because you've got the experience of flying a seaplane in that environment you can you're going to be flying a different airplane in that same environment, so you could just sort of focus a bit more on operating that new type of machine in
1: that environment. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well said. Speaking of the environment, that brings me on to my next topic, which is it's it's a big one for you. I know. Uh, I remember when I was in the Wood Sundays there; they were always notorious for things happening accident wise there was always something that was occurring mainly because of the Wit Sundays themselves you know yeah but there was a period there for a time where not really much happened and I would actually left and I was up in Cairns and as a seaplane pilot, you're always interested in what's happening around the world or especially in your own country in regards to accidents and incidences and uh, I remember one day I heard that there had been an accident in the Wit Sundays and a seaplane accident. And initially, I was uh, probably like every other seaplane operator, they were, they were very interested to see what had happened and make sure that no one was hurt, etc. And I remember thinking to myself and, and speaking to my wife about it and just thinking, oh, buddy, hope it's not Benny. And then later on hearing that it was, um, yeah. you know, it was really devastating for, for myself and obviously for a lot of your other mates, but mate... This is a big topic, but tell us about um, what happened and, uh, and then we'll go from there.
0: Yeah, um, made quite a significant um, time in my life. And um, uh, yeah, I was unfortunately involved in a, quite, a, quite a nasty accident. Yeah, quite a, a life-changing moment for me. You know, it's, it's a part of my story and um, it's something to be spoken about. It's, it's not something I can hide from. Uh, it's not something that can just sort of drift away, you know. It's always going to be there. It's a, it's, it's a significant thing. And, I mean, look, as aviators, as pilots, professional pilots, you know, none of us want to be involved in, in an accident um, of any sort, whether it be minor, whether it be big. That's not what we're about. We're, you know, we want to be professional in what we do. And the, the reality is that, you know, sometimes things do go wrong. Yeah, the holes in the Swiss cheese line, and you know, wooshka, <laughs> something, something so big happens that you just sort of like, what the hell, uh, mate? I was, yeah, that was me. I found myself in that position, and um, yeah, ha- happy to talk about it. Happy to, sh- happy to share my experiences. I mean, as I said, it's 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 a part of me. It's part of my story. It can only be spoken about, and if some people can learn from my experiences, and you know, for the greater good, then you know, I'm glad that that can provide. That sort of uh scenario but uh, mate in terms of the accident itself um yeah look i I won't go into too many specifics on that it's not the right time for that at this stage it is it is for another time but just not now um what was also you know what is also a huge part of that story is is not only the accident itself and you know the ins and outs of all of that but what happens after the accident you know What, what what did i learn after the accident what did i experience how has it changed me how has it affected me um yeah so i I think um it's worthy of you know at this stage talking a bit more about that focusing on the um on the events um after the incident what i learned and um yeah how how it changed me and how it's how it's made me you know the pilot that i am today
1: yeah, so we won't we won't talk too much about what actually happened, but just just to quickly summarise the actual um, accident, so the, the listeners can actually put a bit of perspective to yeah, it, sure. and they probably could read about it online. But yeah. um, you were operating in an area that you normally wouldn't go into.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Um, an area we we wouldn't really visit all that often. There'd be certain wind conditions that would have affected us from going into Whitehaven Beach, and therefore you know we'd have to use a, another beach, which was on. On the le usually on the leeward side of of the of the uh, islands there, so you're getting a fair bit of turbulent airflow through that area, and you know a lot more bullets and gusts on the water, and you're essentially landing in towards a beach. And um, mate, yeah, the, the things um, you know the holes in the Swiss cheese aligned, and um, it was controlled flight into terrain, and um, yeah uh just a yeah significant thing to go through I'd um quite a few passengers on board and we all walked away so that was yeah, quite great. quite an amazing thing to even just to understand that you think you know you see the photos and you you just sort of try to understand <laughs> how it all went so horribly wrong and but yet for so many people to walk away unscathed it's it's almost miracle sort of stuff it's quite quite bizarre. But, um, mate, it was a surreal thing to go through. It all happened in the blink of an eye. It was over in a matter of seconds. It was surreal. It was like, what the hell? What what, what has just happened? It was, um, yeah, a life-changing moment for me. Um, It sort of shows how fragile life really is and also highlights that, as pilots in general or seaplane pilots or an aerobatic pilot or agricultural pilot, whatever sort of niche, piloting skill you, you you find yourself in you know it just goes to show just how risky a business it is and a thing that we're doing it's um yeah, it's, it's it's risky stuff
1: yeah one thing i'd like people can obviously go online and read about what happened in, yep. in certain safety reports but mate i'd really like to to dive in deep to how you recovered from such an accident yeah. I mean for example you go out and you have a car crash no one wants to have a car crash and you're obviously embarrassed about it And you thought you're a better driver than that but then obviously as a professional pilot no one wants to have a plane crash and that's that's got to hurt a lot how was your mental state straight after or even just the weeks after having that accident
0: yeah sure mate I, I, after the accident I um yeah I had um a few weeks off made a real surreal time it was just sort of like what the hell is it does this really happened well you know, how, how did this happen? How did, this, how did I end up in this position? Mate, I, um, yeah, left the Sundays, went home for, uh, for a couple of weeks and sought the um, family support network and the support from my mates and you know, family back home in Sydney, which is key uh, in, in any sort of significant time in anyone's life, you know, you, the family support and support from your friends, um, those that you, you know, really regard highly, to get all the support from them is just worth its weight in gold. Um, mate I, I sought some professional help I had access to um, uh, see a psychologist which was just so beneficial um, just to chat with you know a, a medium medium party and talk it through and you know they know how to ask the right questions and just you know get things off your chest and all that sort of stuff mate she was she, she was she was again worth a weight in gold she um, asked some big questions and you know she um, sort of really dug deep there to sort of get uh, all those thoughts off my chest and out of my head but um one thing that she emphasized was the fact that you simply can't change what has happened in the past you can't change what has happened in the past you know it's been it's done you you can't go back there you can't change anything so she said you've just got to accept that you've just got to accept that you cannot change the past and that's probably one of the you know the, the biggest things um one of the Few biggest things I took took out of this recovery cycle was that you know, you know what you you stop and think about it, but you you can't go back in time and change what has happened. Yeah, great advice. Once you sort of accept that, you just you go well. Look, yeah, you know what? I can't go back that way. There's only one way I can go, and that's forward.
1: And then what was the next step to go forward? Was that uh, to get back on the saddle, basically? And, and yeah,
0: well, in the in the same chat. With the uh, psychologist, you know, she was like, Where do you go from here? What do you want to do? And mate, I simply just said, Look, I, I want to go, for- I want to continue flying. I-, I want to go flying again. Immediately, she said, Ben, that statement there is, is worth so much. That speaks-, speaks volumes. The way we act on this now is that you get back on the horse sooner rather than later. The longer you leave it, the more chance there are for barriers to start popping up and, um, you know, stopping that progress. So she said, you've got to get back on this horse sooner rather than later. And, mate, I, I, this was in Sydney at the time and I, I had the opportunity and, I, well, I had the availability of, of mentors and instructors because I did all my training here in Sydney. So, I, I, you know, I reached out to them and they were super supportive and I said, you know, to one of my mentors, I said, mate, you know, I want to go flying. I want to go flying with you. And he's like, yep, come on, let's go. So we uh, took a Cirrus up. And um, yeah, went up back up in the skies for for a few hours and threw the machine around and some stalls and steep turns and you know really working the envelope of the aircraft there and you know nothing really fazed me, mate. I didn't. I wasn't that anxious. I wasn't feeling anxious. I wasn't feeling scared. I wasn't you know sort of doubting myself. It was it was if anything it was it was a real positive step. It was like yeah, I can I can do this. I can do this again for sure.
1: It just goes to show how, how much aviation is actually in your blood, hey? Yeah, yeah.
0: well, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the passion's definitely there. Yeah, I just couldn't let it go. I wanted to, you know, pursue. I wanted to, to, to try at least try it again and, yeah, surprised myself, mate. I, yeah, as I said, I wasn't anxious. I wasn't nervous and to get back on the horse was, was, um, was you know, a huge step. And mate, I also I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to go for a, during this two weeks off. I was lucky enough to to jump back into a Cessna Caravan amphib, exact same type, size, and um, you know avionics setup as the uh, the one I had the the accident in. So to jump back into that platform where everything was, you know, it was the same essentially the same machine to go and fly that on and off the water, and um, throughout that time was, again, another big step and another big proving point that, yeah, I'm, I'm capable of getting back into the um, into the saddle and flying again. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, mate, that family support network and the support from, from, from friends is just massive. Um, the professional help was worth its weight in gold as well. To have all those mentors reach out and help out was all part of the process, and um, I sort of processed the whole event quite well and, um, and throughout that two weeks off, you know, a fair bit of time there to sort of, to dwell on things and understand things and think about it and put all the pieces of the puzzle together and, you know, analyze it and just understand what the hell went wrong, you know? And mate, what was another significant thing that I discovered was that, you know, and sort of goes, goes on from what the psychologist had said, you, you know, you can't change what happened. You can't go back into the past. You can only move forward. And it you know from that I, I realized that you know look I've got two choices here I've got two choices I can either let this beat me and you know drive me into the ground and just become bigger than me or I've lived it I'm understanding it I've just got to accept that and all I can do is move forward so yeah two choices either let it beat me or I just grow from it
1: and it's uh, clear that you made the the right choice mate because you excelling at the moment in uh, the aviation industry so
0: yeah yeah from a from a quite a big and significant sort of point in my life of you know quite a bit of hardship and to be where i am today you just sort of think wow bloody hell it's actually um yeah i've processed it all quite well exactly so, and look let, let this be a lesson for for anyone um, going through any hardships um if you need you know that professional help you know go and see someone have a yarn have a chat Someone, you know, if if they if they give you their five cents worth, or they give you their hundred dollars worth, you know, even that five cents is just, you know, is is um, more beneficial than than nothing. And yeah, look, you've got two choices: you either let something beat you and let it, you know, grind you into the ground and let it become bigger than you, or you just, you know, accept that it is what it is. You you've lived it, you learn from it, you accept it, you've understood it, and how how do you become a bigger, better, stronger person from it? So you know, you can go this way or you can go that way.
1: Yeah, great Um, advice. so, mate, um, you had those two weeks off. Did you then go back to the Wit Sundays to continue flying seaplanes around there?:
0: Yeah, I did mate. I did again another big step in the, um, in the process. Uh, went back up to the Wit Sundays and um, continued work with the employer. I uh, was put through a pretty big base check to make sure I was you know um, up to it and uh, yeah that was a pretty big base check. and
1: how was your confidence during that?
0: Um, Mate, us, you know, you sort of, you've got your doubts. You, you sort of, you you come, you come through an accident like that. You sort of doubt yourself and you think, you know, am like, I capable? Um, Is this really for me? But, mate, it, my confidence was, you know, it was um, it was high. It was, you know, had a bit more weight to it than than any doubts. And you know, back yourself and yeah, I was the choice was mine. And
1: was it reinstalled after having that really good base check?
0: Uh, yeah, look, it was it was a, it was a very thorough base check. I was definitely put through through my paces there. Um, it, it was a confidence booster to know that yeah, all right, I've just been put under the pump there. I can you know get back into it. So yeah, there was a re- there was definitely some reinstallment there of confidence for sure. So you completed that base check and um, mate, I was back to line operations, flying uh, the Beaver around the Whitsundays those again.
1: That must have been um, really good to know that you're back getting paid to fly and do the things you love again. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was good.
1: So what was the next step after that? How long did you stay around at Hamilton Island and and where did you go next?
0: Yeah, mate, so I was there for a few more months. I'd I'd sort of felt, you know, it was quite a significant thing to go through and um, having worked hard in, in in your early years as a general aviation pilot, you know, you're working hard, Long hours, physical work, mental work. I sort of, you know, in a way, I sort of felt a bit burnt out. So, mate, I sort of gave up flying. Not gave it up uh, totally, but I sort of removed myself from the flying world and just sort of um, got out of that to sort of freshen up a little bit. And I actually um, yeah, took a few months off and I actually went and worked a winter ski season down in the snowy mountains of, of Australia, back on ski patrol. I'd done quite a few years of ski patrolling down there in the, my previous years. and. Yeah, jumped it back into that to sort of recalibrate, refresh the mind, just have a break from the hard work of general aviation and, um, mate, that worked wonders. So I did that for a few months. I had a summer back home in Sydney and, um, mate, I had the opportunity to continue flying again with another operator in uh, Western Australia.
1: So tell us about that job, uh, flying over in WA, because I know that's a very busy uh, environment as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am forever grateful and... um, yeah, what an opportunity that was to go and fly for Horizontal Falls Superline Adventures, based out of Broome, there on the uh, WA coastline uh, in the Kimberley. Um, made what a what an operation that is. Um, they've got five caravan amphib's operating tours out to the Horizontal Falls, which is an amazing part of the Kimberley country there in WA. Um, a very busy operation. Uh, it's a seasonal operation through the winter months of Australia. Flying guests uh, from Broome, Derby, a few other places out to the Horizontal Falls. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing setup. Uh, so, you're forever grateful uh, yeah. to get that opportunity. And out of that, I've, I've worked three seasons there.
1: Yeah, nice. And just going back a step there, what was it like uh, trying to apply for another seaplane operator in Australia just with that accident that's happened in the background? Was it mentioned in interviews or did you bring it up yourself? How did you deal with that?
0: Yeah, well well said, mate. Once again, you know, this um, this accident is, is – uh, it'll forever be a part of me and a part of my story, so it's something that I've got to talk about. Any future employer is going to want to know about it. So, yeah, there's definitely no hiding from it. Um, just sort of had to talk it out. And, um, yeah, funnily enough, I was actually approached by the company to um, well, come and fly for them. That was – that was quite a nice feeling to have them reach out to me and say, come on, come and try your luck over here, so to speak. And, um, you know, you sort of go, I went over there thinking, you know, I've got to prove myself here. You know, there's a fair bit of pressure there to sort of perform well and and, um, not sort of seem to be a risk to the operation. So, yeah, forever grateful for that opportunity. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time working for that company.
1: Now, you said at the start as well that you're a international uh float plane pilot now tell us a little bit about
0: uh
1: yeah. going overseas to fly floats uh, it's a
0: funny little title that one um <laughs> mate again uh yeah so i've i did a season over in dubai in the uh, uae uh, one of the um central hubs of the world uh flying caribbean amphibs over there for sea wings dubai again grateful for the opportunity made funny little story there actually i So my time there was uh, a five-month contract over their busy winter period, over the Christmas, New Year, Chinese New Year period. Uh, They found themselves short of pilots just before the start of their season. Um, Mate, actually, it would have been two years before I got this job in Dubai. I'd actually first applied to go and work over there. And um, at the time, you know, back then in sort of 2016, after I'd applied to work in Dubai, the, the um, correspondence was quite quick and through the chief pilot there at the time. And he said, oh, look, then you haven't got enough total time, you know, speak to you later on in the future or whatever. And I sort of didn't really think much of it. And yeah, look, it is what it is. And sort of thought the end of that. And two, two years two years later, I found myself at home in, in Sydney. I just had a shoulder operation from all the footy injuries back in the day. And, um, mate, I, I got an email on a Friday um, from the HR department at this at the operator in Dubai and said, oh, hi, Ben, just wondering if you're still interested in a position. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, bloody hell, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, received an email on the Friday and I, I was more than happy to pursue an opportunity over there in Dubai at the time. And I wrote back to them on the Sunday I had a phone interview on the Monday. I had a contract that Thursday, and I flew out of Australia a week and a half later. They were Crazy. sort they—they of, they were quite desperate to get some pilots over there in preparation for their busy season. Um, mate, what an opportunity! Five months. Uh, in a different country different airspace um, a few different rules and regs learning all the names of, of um, you know points of interest and being a tour guide you have to learn about you know a bit about the, the draw cards of Dubai and um, yeah what, what a what a great operation that was and uh, in a very unique environment too you've got you know pretty much desert to the west, uh, to the east of Dubai and you've got this quite an amazing coastline that runs that um, western coastline of the UAE and some very, very well-known landmarks, um, Palm Jumeirah. And you've got the tallest building in the world there, the Burj Khalifa and the Burj Al Arab, that funky looking building up built off the coastline. So yeah, made amazing time working alongside, um, uh, working in and amongst, you know, quite a, a mix of nationalities as well. You had some Uh, people from Russia, you had some staff from the Philippines, staff from Sri Lanka, you had Canadian pilots, Kiwi pilots, Sri Lankan pilots. Um, Working in a multicultural sort of uh, team was uh, just just amazing. To learn, learn from different people and learn about their cultures and all that sort of stuff, it was, yeah, wow, what an experience.
1: Yeah, it is interesting these contracts that are coming up overseas I myself did uh, a year in Vietnam. I know that there's yeah. Philippines, um, there's uh, Fiji, you know Vietnam and Dubai, um, yeah. Indonesia I think as well. So there's just there's a lot of these different lucrative contracts that are coming up overseas for pilots like yourself who have done some hard yards and got some time up, and then can yeah. go and experience you know a bit of overseas flying, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Some great experiences out there to be had and uh, opportunities in, in what is quite a niche market, the seaplane flying. Um, any seaplane operator wants, wants experienced seaplane pilots and um, there aren't many seaplane pilots um, in the world, you know, comparatively speaking. Um, it's quite a niche little market. So yeah, there's some, some good opportunities to be had out there for seaplane pilots, that's for sure.
1: It's going to be interesting with obviously all this COVID-19 stuff that's going around at the moment. Obviously, the, the seaplane interest was sparked by a lot of float pilots going to the airlines, so creating a big gap in the market of, of guys yep. who wanted to stay in floats. But we'll, we'll just see what happens, and I'm sure that it'll bounce back just like the rest of aviation, Will, around, around the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Everyone loves to travel. Everyone wants to experience new things around the world, so the, the uh, travel industry will be back in no that time, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, mate, um, I know that uh, now you're actually out of the float plane industry for now. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it like that because I've got faith that you'll be <laughs> back soon. But uh, you know, you, you you've got a really successful uh, job at the moment, flying uh, on the east coast in a caravan in an IFR role this time on on wheels. But um, I'm sure you're loving that. And how do you find the the IFR change?
0: Yeah, um, just before we talk about the IFR, I'll definitely. Um Keep my hand in the in the seaplane flying side of things. It's um, the most amount of uh, fun I've had flying an aircraft. It's a real um, man and machine type of flying. Really feeling that wing out and um, you know operating an aircraft, getting an aircraft off the water at its slowest possible speed, and also landing it on the water at its slowest possible speed to look after the machine. It's um, yeah, real man and machine flying. So I'll uh, definitely keep my hand in there, some way or another. But um, just because I'm no longer flying seaplanes doesn't mean it's the end of that. So I'll be back. That's I'll okay. be back, <laughs> um, mate. The IFR side of it, yeah. Um, again, uh, find myself in a in a very good position. Um, having transitioned into the IFR world, uh, flying a caravan around. So yeah, it's uh, with the. The, um, the good amount of caravan time that I've got, it was sort of quite an easy transition to move into the IFR side of things. Even though I hadn't done much IFR flying, um, I was, you know, very quite comfortable with the machine, so I could just that would allow my brain space just to focus on the IFR procedures and learning the ropes there, so to speak. Um, it's uh, yeah, a very safe way of flying, that's for sure. You Sort of you got a lot of a lot of uh, safety margins there, even though we are flying in in what's what can be considered, you know, sort of um, not ideal flying weather you've still got some very safe procedures there to follow with your lower safes and all your instrument approaches and, and those types of things so yeah you've got to get those things right and understand that for a safe outcome
1: yeah exactly well mate it's um it's been great having you on the show here on uh, you've got an incredible story and i'm just really thankful and i'm sure all the listeners out there are thankful as well that you're happy to share that story and share some really good advice about you know what to do in the in that scenario in the unthinkable, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really appreciate that. But before we go, um, we're just going to go through a little seaplane splash and dash questionnaire. So just like a land plane with its touch and goes, uh, the seaplane splash and dash. We're going to touch on a few little questions here about the seaplane world. Um, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to start <laughs> off, mate, with uh, what is your favourite seaplane that you've ever flown?
0: Ooh favorite seaplane would have to be the beaver um yeah quite a bit of sentimental sort of value there the first seaplane um aircraft to fly big radial engine the sound of the radial engine it was a machine that you know it was sort of it was um you know loaded up it had a fair bit of weight on board it didn't have a huge amount of power to sort of combat that weight so you know flying it in the seaplane role you really had to really feel it and work that aircraft uh, off the water,
1: especially in the heat um, of the Whitsundays hey?
0: No, absolutely, the heat and the humidity. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, fond memories of the Beaver mates so are definitely the uh, the Beaver, the favourite seaplane for sure.
1: What about? Have you flown on any other different types of uh, seaplanes that really uh, stood out?
0: Uh, I did a bit of time in a Buccaneer. That'd be fun. Uh, a few hours there as well. Yeah, sort of the um, you know the big prop up above your head and the engine up above your head. It was all quite different. So, yeah, that, yeah, different aspect of float flying there as well.
1: I was, I was trying to lead you into, mate, the, uh, the little run you had on the Mallard with me. But, uh, but anyway, don't
0: <laughs> How could I forget, <laughs> mate? What a time that was. What an impressive machine, mate, that Mallard. And um, watching you perform up there in a the multi-crew environment, um, IFR, seaplane ops. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyone else gets the opportunity, definitely jump on board with uh, Old Bolt here. He'll, um, <laughs> he'll show you a good time.
1: <laughs> Still talking about planes, yeah?
0: <laughs>
1: next. Um, okay, next question. Um, a river, lake or open ocean, which one would you rather land a seaplane Ooh. or fly a seaplane on? Uh,
0: mate, I'm going to say a curved river.
1: Curved river.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: they are good fun, aren't they?
0: The, old, the good olds you know, one float, uh, takeoff and landing, curved landings and takeoffs, yeah. How yeah, good? Lots of fun.
1: We do a lot of those up here with the fishing charters and whatnot, so that the curve rivers are a heap yeah. of fun, especially when yeah. you literally have to take the curve for the takeoff, you know. Yeah. It yeah. makes it a lot of fun.
0: Man and machine. Yeah, very good.
1: If you could pick anyone, what would be your dream seaplane to fly?
0: Oh, dream seaplane to fly. Mate, I'd have to say the Twin Otter. Um, obviously, lots of them getting around in the Maldives, and you see lots of, Glamorous photos of uh, twin otters in and around the Maldives. They make a lot of um, people
1: jealous, I think. Eh?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, mate, just, uh, yeah, um, I've heard just a really solid, robust machine. Um, very good at what they do. They can handle a fair bit of swell and choppy water. Um, so, yeah, they're quite a solid machine. I'd love to, love to fly one of them one day.
1: What about a dream seaplane job? If you could pick any Ooh. job around the world, it didn't matter about lifestyle. What do you reckon would be a cool seaplane job?
0: Dream seaplane job? Mate, it'd probably have to be a corporate seaplane job, flying a um, a twin Otter, fully decked out with all the bells and whistles for a wealthy family, or a, you know a wealthy fellow, or something like that. Um, flying that around to all these different houses and um, other places of interest. Um, Yeah, corporate seaplane job, I reckon.
1: That sounds pretty good, except I'll swap the Twin Otter for an Albatross or something like that. That would be pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you weren't a pilot in the aviation industry, would you do anything else in aviation? Does anything else tickle your fancy in aviation?
0: Maybe an aviation firefighter.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Bench pressing all day, watching planes take off?
0: Yeah, sitting back, drinking lattes all day, and might do the odd... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the odd um, training drill early on in the morning. We Perhaps. might get in
1: trouble for saying that because those those guys obviously do a great job no, they, and they do.
0: They work very hard. they um, They do actually. They,
1: those boys in Broome. <laughs> I I had a chat to them once. They actually came over and washed the mallard for me because we had no. <laughs> Because yeah, we had no, we had an overnight yeah. and um, they're flat out because yeah. they do a lot of these stuff like uh, there's an airplane that comes in with a medivac, for example yeah absolutely um, they're, they're, they're out there doing stuff
0: yeah correct and even in the terminals lots of um, you know lots of medical events that might happen in the terminal yeah. as well so yeah bit of variety so, there um,
1: pay a bit of respect to those boys because they do Mate, a lot, and and ladies obviously full full respect to, to I'm the not men just talking here, I'm doing the both of us. <laughs> Um mate, um, what I just about... w- I
0: just wanna I just wanna drive around in one of their fire trucks. Yeah, you know? some pretty cool fire trucks, eh? Yeah, hey? yeah,
1: absolutely. Certainly wash the malide very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> mate, have you got any advice for aspiring seaplane pilots?
0: Ooh Aspiring seaplane pilots. Yeah, look, it's very rewarding. It's very rewarding flying. It's very hands on, it's man and machine. You really end up feeling the aircraft through the uh, seat of your pants, you know, you're really feeling what that wing's is doing. Um, seaplanes can operate into some rough water at times and that, that can cause a fair bit of damage to an aircraft or puts a fair bit of shock through, through the airframe. So you, you really got to sort of nurture a seaplane and, and look after them. And you're always sort of looking out for the smoothest bit of water to land a seaplane in to look after the machine. Um, yeah, really start to understand how the how the wind the wind and the water work together reading the wind off the water understanding how the wind behaves around islands and you know you sort of got bullets and gusts and updrafts and and downdrafts and you know all all that sort of stuff so really understanding what can affect the seaplane um yeah you got to keep your eyes open for other traffic out there and not just aeroplane traffic but you've got kayakers you've got you know, snorkelers, you've got swimmers, uh, you've got boat wake, all those sorts of things. There's, there's a whole bunch of other little skills you've got to learn as a seaplane pilot um, as well. And also, <laughs> another quirky little thing, too, though, you can give a seaplane as much love as you want, but it's probably not going to love you back as much as you give it. And by that, I mean operating a seaplane in saltwater environments, corrosion's um, pretty much the number one killer. On an aircraft, the um, the salt water is very corrosive. So you can forever be washing an aircraft down and waxing it and, you know, shamming it dry and lubing up all the moving parts and bits and pieces. But the you know that corrosion is still going to be there. It's still going to be working its way into the aircraft. So yeah, just be ready for that one. You'll be working hard trying to look after it after a seaplane.
1: Good shout, mate. Well, it's yeah. been great having you on board, mate. And once again, really appreciate you going. Into some really personal stories there to tell our audience um, how you were coping with those events uh, that were so big in your life, like you mentioned. But um, mate, thanks for thanks for coming on the show, and uh, all the best.
0: Dan, thanks very much for having me, mate. Yeah, I've got a quite a unique story there, and um, happy to happy to share share it all. And um, if it helps someone else along their path, then um, you beauty, you know. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity, mate. Love your work.
1: No worries, mate. All the best.
0: Good on you
1: Dan see you mate and folks that wraps up the show for today epic epic interview with Benny there it's an absolute crazy story and I hope you loved his story just as much as I did now if you're still listening the time has come to leave me a five star review folks and if you do I'll give you a shout out on the next episode how's that for a bargain Also, get in touch to be featured on the Seaplane Spotlight. The the batteries, unfortunately, were flat today, uh, but we'll get her shining again very shortly. But before we go, here is a teaser of episode number four coming to you very shortly. Yeah, I'm currently sitting in an aircraft, dripping wet, and it won't start. And I'm floating downriver towards a 96-meter waterfall, um, which was about 300 meters downriver. Until next time everyone, thanks for coming on The Step.